Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. I tried to find my own counselors in the last few years, and everybody I went to didn't know how to help me. Well, we don't understand cult backgrounds, or well, we're Christian counselors. We don't counsel people who have questions about their faith. Um, and so you put all those pieces together, and I decided, you know what? It's time. I've got to do something. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now... Here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Rebecca on the show today uh, to cover quite a few interesting topics. But Rebecca, can you just introduce yourself and let people know how you got into the independent fundamental Baptist movement? My name is Rebecca Drumstep. Um, I am now a certified professional life coach and I work with individuals who are experiencing a faith deconstruction or who are confused about what they believe or parenting through um, a faith deconstruction. Also individuals who have had a cult-like or coercive manipulative mind control organization background. Um, It's quite rewarding and it can be challenging, um, but I realized there was a gap and um, there weren't a lot of people stepping into that. The reason I chose um, that form of life coaching is because four different fundamentalist cults impacted the foundation of my own life. One of those would be the IFB denomination. And um, that began, how I was introduced to that was when I was five years old. Um, My family had been part of the church that was a cult. It was in the um, Church of God, Anderson, Indiana denomination. But the pastor of that church is the one who made it into a cult. He would literally make a statement and then cause the church to divide up. If you agree with me, stand on this side of the auditorium. If you don't agree, stand on that side of the auditorium. If you're on that side of the auditorium, you have to leave and you're never welcome back. Um, that happened with extended with family members from my extended family as well, who then left and never came back. Um, so they, my family was very, very involved in that church with bus ministry and all of these things. But after some other situations that happened, they began to realize that that was not a healthy environment. So they decided to make a radical change, left that cult behind and joined an independent fundamental Baptist church. Um, before they were members, they were already leading Sunday school for little kids. Um, and there is me at five years old now in an independent fundamental Baptist church. So, Did you say that your initial experience was positive within that world? Or would you say that you recognized a bunch of red flags pretty early on? Well, I was five. So when it started there, um, I would honestly say that for many years, 
as a child, it felt idyllic. Hmm. Um, I was homeschooled and there were a lot of homeschool families, about 40, 50 homeschool families, equaling 150 to 200 homeschooled children in our church. And so during those years, it felt like we were part of a really big family. Um, and we looked forward to going to church. We enjoyed going to church. Um, I honestly had no idea that something was so off right in in the things I'd been taught about being a woman and about your roles as a woman, um, about who God was, about all of those things. And so it wasn't until I began traveling internationally um, as an older teenager that I started having questions about, wait a second, maybe this isn't absolute truth. Right. What was the first one of those questions that came to mind? Do you remember, or was it kind of a, like slowly just started eroding away some of those concepts for you? Mm -hmm. I was 19 years old. Okay. And I lived in India. And I began, I was actually at a ministry there. Which which part um, of India? It was in Vishakhapatnam or Vizag. It was the largest port city. Um, it was along the coast. Um, and I loved the people there. Um, it changed my life. And I began to realize, I, um, I actually went once like on a mission trip with some mutual friends, not, um, that I'd had, um, not from IFB, but through my homeschooling experience. And I went for a three week mission trip and then I went back and I lived there for six months. Okay. And I noticed the first time um, that people would walk two or three miles to get to church and they'd be barefoot and they'd get there before 7 a.m. and church didn't start till nine. Mm. And I noticed that I was like, wow, they're so committed to God, you know, and they'd be kneeling, they'd be kneeling down and they'd be praising God and they'd be singing worship songs and crying and confessing their sins. And then the, the music would get there. Like the, the worship team, if you will, would show up and they played the drums. Hmm. And then some people during the worship time would be dancing. And this made me start just little flags of, huh, that's interesting. Right. That was during the three weeks that I was there. When I went back for six months, um, one of the women that I'd helped baptize had been murdered by her family because hmm. she became a Christian. Right. And I thought, we don't experience that. I'm not, I'm not having to worry about if I choose Jesus, is, am I going to be killed? Um, and so after that six month stint of living there, having more experiences, I came home and the very first service in my IFB church, I turned to my dad and I said, this church is dead. There's no life in it. And he's like, honey, 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 no, 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 no. You're having like a PTSD or a cultural shock moment. Um, it's just cultural differences. And so after that experience is when all those seeds, I just would start looking at the world quite differently. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's actually, I asked what part of India, because I actually lived about nine hours from where you lived uh, in India. Um, yeah. So I lived in India for about three months, uh, with my wife right after we got married. Um, we were going to be there a year and then ended up, uh, she ended up having like some health complications. We ended up coming home early. Um, but yeah, that's whenever someone's like India, I'm like, what, what part? (laughs) So, and usually it's always like, oh, totally opposite side. So that's the closest, like. Because that's in Andhra Pradesh, Andhra Pradesh, which is mm-hmm. um, yeah, which is where we were at. Um, but yeah. that's a huge area too. But we were about nine hours from there um, in like okay. a really small village. But same, same experience. And even coming home, it was very hard adapting back to like American Christianity mm-hmm. because you you yeah. would see this very authentic, very very vibrant faith there, and the the problems they were facing were like legitimate very big problems like oh and death. yeah right and so coming back home and people are like oh yeah we're really struggling over like small groups or we're doing you know you're just like mm-hmm. i don't feel like we're on the same page anymore even after this short yeah. exposure it's yeah. just feels lacking when you come back um 
I so, did a very, I guess, a classic move. But when I got home, I got rid of half of what I owned. Mm. And I could also not get used to sleeping in a soft bed anymore because I would right. sleep on a grass mat mm. on the floor or if they had a mattress, it was hard. So I actually yeah. slept on my floor for about six months when I yeah. got home. Yeah, the mattresses are rough <laughs> for sure when you're there. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it takes a lot to adapt to, but um, mm -hmm. but yeah. So coming back, recognizing that, and that like that's when your bubble bursts in a big way. Um, mm -hmm. What was kind of the the development from that? Was it was it something where you just kind of slowly stopped going to the church there? Is it something where you just felt like nobody understands what I understand now? I mean, not obviously that sounds really conceited, but it really is that feeling of, I'm not speaking the same language as you now. Like I'm really feel like we just experienced two different things over the past few months. Well, if you go to my blog on the homepage, I talk about the expression to me to fit in. Hmm. And I felt that way most of my life. Um, even before my experiences um, overseas and things like that, where I just, I looked the part, I dressed the part, I would have been a poster child. Um, you know, when I, I went to Pensacola Christian College for summer music camps, a good, you know, the IFB college, and they were begging me to come and be on their music team, and I would get to travel. Like, I acted and looked the perfect little IFB girl part. And I always felt like an outsider looking in, though. I and I believed wholeheartedly everything I'd been taught. My heart was right. I loved God. I wanted to do things right. And, and yet I just didn't ever feel like I fit in. Um, and so fast forwarding many years, I stayed in the church. I didn't know anything different. Um, again, women are to be in subject to men and they're to be keepers at home and honor their fathers. And the, the authority doesn't shift from your father until you're married. Hmm. And so I was very much under my parents' authority. Um, and until I was 22 years old. Hmm. Um, and at that point, I got married. Um, and within the first year, the man I married was not from an IFB background. And he had come to the church because he read materials from Sword of the Lord um, at the, the little Southern Baptist church where he had been. And he moved to the city where I was and was like, oh, they mentioned the name of this church in Sword of the Lord. So he came and visited and sat down behind this curly haired hourglass figure girl and decided to stay. <laughs> and that was me, obviously. And uh, then we were married. And quite quickly. And, um, like I said, about a year later, he says, we're leaving this church. There's something really wrong. I can't tell you what it is, but I only stayed because I wanted to marry you. Um, I was a little bit, uh, a little bit mad. Mm. That was the church I'd been in since I was five years old. Right. Um, everybody though called him Rebecca's husband. People wouldn't even know what his name was. Yeah. Then she was Rebecca's husband because Rebecca had led the VBS. Rebecca had taught Sunday school. Rebecca had done all these things in leadership positions. And Rebecca would sing solos and play the piano for church accompaniment and the choir. And so everybody referred, that's Rebecca's husband. And so that was his one big thing of saying, I need to go somewhere where I am who I am, <laughs> not just Rebecca's husband. But that um, made me angry. And, um, but it got me out of the IFB church. Hmm. which years later I don't like to give him too much credit but I usually say thanks babe because he was right <laughs> <laughs> right right so um what's the journey past that because obviously the the field of your work and I know when some people hear the word de deconstruction mm -hmm. it evokes this idea of someone who is you know completely non-religious or I, I think yeah. I think people within the Christian realm probably have a negative connotation so can you explain how you began that process and mm -hmm. it becoming really your career um, and just kind of explain what that means for people listening who are like, ah, you know, like, what does that mean? She left the church and now she's doing what I perceive to be, you know, deconstructing mm -hmm. it or tearing it apart. Um, what yeah. is the deconstruction process and how did you kind of begin that? Well, I define deconstruction as 
dissecting or piecing apart one's beliefs. Um, the term deconstructed sandwich has been around for a long time. Um, and it's really no different. It's taking, okay, this piece and then this piece and then putting it here and then moving it there. And then, oh, I don't like tomatoes. So that goes away. Or, oh, I'm allergic to this, whatever. It's tearing it apart and piecing it apart. Right. Um, so how my faith deconstruction began was actually with the birth of my daughter. Um, so I'd gotten married at 22 and, um, a couple years later, um, I have my first child and I did everything right. I didn't gain hardly any weight. I walked at least a mile every day. I didn't have caffeine. I didn't like all the checklists of all the things that we prayed over the baby hands on your belly every single day. And, um, I was going to have a home birth because that was the best way to do it. So we're going to have home birth and we're going to have midwives and we're going to have hymns playing in the room. And my husband would read scripture out loud during the birth. And we had the plan and it was exactly like following the rules, a formula for how to have a baby. Yeah, that didn't work. <laughs> my labor was almost a world record. And I went through four midwives uh, during that process because they'd call each other because nobody could figure out what was going on. Um, in the end, I went to the hospital, uh, was there for 24 hours in labor after I'd been at home, ending in a C-section where I felt them slice me open. It was the most traumatic experience I had ever had up until that point. So I'm recovering at home with my newborn. And I look at her face and I, and I, I just remember going, it didn't work. Mm. And I felt so abandoned by God. Yeah. Here I was in need. I was suffering physically. Like I couldn't. I won't give you all the gruesome details, but I could only get halfway to having a baby. My body wouldn't birth a baby. Hmm. And I felt so, so abandoned by God. And I was like, if all of this didn't work, what else isn't working? What else hmm. have I been tricked into believing? And um, I know now after a lot of, of maturity and going to counseling and understanding myself, having much more self-awareness, my body was actually having a trauma response mm. because I was not in control anymore. I was not a controlling person, but my environment had always been controlled. You follow all the rules, you follow all the processes and this step and the promise of God is this. And if you are this, then God will do that. And if you don't, God, you know, so I had a very, very defined construct of life and having a baby, you don't get to be in charge of that. And I was literally, I was so afraid and I had so much trauma that was showing up in my body. My body was holding on to my baby and would not let her come out. Mm. And, um, of course it took me many years to understand the why I'm like, what's medically wrong with me, you know, but it's not that it, mm. it was my, my body's physical response to not having control and being scared out of my, my wits. Right. And um, that is how my faith deconstruction started. Um, so that was about 12 years ago. There were no resources. There was no help for me. So it's possible that Google search engine has just improved over the last 12 years. But 12 years ago, when I would Google, I have questions about my faith or I don't know what to believe anymore. Um, is like there were no answers. There were no books. There were no support groups. There was nothing for me. Um, I had other influences in my life. Like I said, four different cults impacted them. One of them was a large homeschool organization that you I'm sure you're familiar with called IBLP, um, Institute of Basic Life Principles led by Bill Gothard. Yeah. And so at one point, a few years later, um, there did become a small group of people coming out of that that had a Facebook community and we would get on together and talk things through, but that was years later. Yeah. And, um, I felt very alone on this journey. I felt very isolated. I felt very afraid. My husband has been with me this whole time, but he didn't have 
any tools in his toolbox to know how to help me other than to be like, I support you, honey. I do. I love you and I support you, but I don't know how to help with this. Um, deconstruction, when you begin it, when you start recognizing that there has been something that was not true in the foundation of what you believe, the scariest part is that you don't know where you're going to have to go. I, I kept repeating, put me back in the box. I would lay in bed literally crying at night and saying, can we just go back in the box? Now I know not to do this and that that's a lie and that that's wrong. But if I go back in the box, I'll feel safe again because that was my, those are my walls. That's the control. Um, so when you begin to question the things that you believe in, you're scared because you know that that means anything in your life could change. For me, that's met political views. How I am, who I am as a woman, how my marriage looks, how I parent, um, how I honestly thought that having family dinner every night with a meat, two vegetables and a saw and a bread, I thought that was Bible. I thought you had to have family meals together or else you were sinning. So part of why faith deconstruction is such a big deal is it's mind, body, soul, and spirit. It's the whole person. And um, that's why it affects us all so deeply. Um, anyway, I don't know if that answers your question or. No, definitely. It definitely does. Um, and, and at what point did you get to the, to the spot where you were like, I want to help other people through this process? Um, because obviously it's one thing going through it for you, but when something is that traumatic and hard to go through, a lot of people just say, well, I'm done with that. I'm going to just move forward and put that behind me. So what was yeah. it that drew you back to like start reaching around and start helping other people? I've always had a heart's desire to help people all through my life growing up. Like when I was five and six years old, um, if you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said, I want to be a missionary nurse in Africa. Hmm. Um, I always wanted to serve and help people. Um, I went through the years when I, I had multiple miscarriages, um, those years when I was trying to have babies, raising little one, um, I didn't do a whole lot. Those were also my core of the deconstructing years. Um, there was about a five or six year period where I did not go to church. I could not go to church. I um, was so wounded. I I'd never had a panic attack before, ever. But I did one day when I was trying to force myself to walk into a church. Um, I felt like I was being squeezed with saran wrap. Is what I told my husband. I feel like it's moving from my feet all the way up to my head. And suddenly I'm not going to be able to breathe. They're wrapping me in saran wrap. I've got to get out of here. Um, so after a huge t gap of time, I decided that, hmm, let me go see if this church up the road will hire me. And they did. I was the children's ministry director at the church and it helped me. I thought it was a gap. I thought it was all right. I'm at church with my family, but I don't have to go to church because I'm in charge. <laughs> like yeah. I, I don't have to sit through the worship service and a sermon and all of these things. And half of what they're saying, I don't agree with anymore anyway. But I felt like it was important for my, my kid to have a, an understanding, like something to relate to as far as spirit, a spiritual environment. Hmm. Um, that lasted about a year. And a woman came on staff. And she was going to technically be um, a higher ranking, I guess you would say, than I am. She was going to be. And uh, she quickly decided she didn't like me, that I was competition. And I met her once and a week later, um, I was called to a meeting and basically told it was me or her. And I said, because this for me is about serving people and this does do nothing to help people, I'm, I'm out. Mm -hmm. And I just chose to step away. I finally, for the first time in my life, understood the term I'd heard forever of a stumbling block. So her choice to come in there and she was old enough to be my mother her choice to come in there and do that literally pushed me all the way back to where I said forget it no this church thing I'm not gonna do it anymore um 
I've been hurt again by people in the church. I gave church a chance and look what happened to me. So when that happened, um, a job opened up for me actually to, to help with the um, beginnings of a new nonprofit. And this nonprofit had nothing to do with religion or faith. And, but all of the things that I would have on my resume, all my experiences, all my training, everything um, could be used through it. And so I quickly became involved in this nonprofit. And now um, two and a half years later, we are um, serving over 9,000 people in 40 different countries who've taken at-home DNA tests and discovered that one or both of the people who they always thought was their parents is actually not their biological parent. Right. So there is a point to all this, all these details. <laughs> so I have been in that space, the mental health space and um, in dealing with people who are struggling and hurting. And I began to see so many crossovers. I also started looking again, realizing I tried to find my own counselors in the last few years and everybody I went to didn't know how to help me. Well, we don't understand cult backgrounds or right. well, we're Christian counselors. We don't counsel people who have questions about their faith. Um, and so you put all those pieces together and I decided, you know what? It's time. I've got to do something. And I don't see anybody stepping into this area and helping. And so um, right at the beginning, when I started working with the non or establishing the nonprofit, I became a certified life coach. And then I took that even farther and got additional training in relationship coaching because I saw that it's the families that are hurting, whether it's I'm the one deconstructing. So how do I interact with my husband and raise my kids or the family that doesn't agree with me anymore and who's angry with me because I've come out about a lifestyle choice or a belief system. Um, how do I navigate that? I'm hurting, they're hurting. And so that's what led me into coaching in this space was I saw there were very few people that knew how to help. Mm. And while there are people who may be more qualified than me, I've lived it. And I really, really want to see you find truth and find wholeness again. Right. Um, so what, what would you say are some of the biggest belief shifts or, or, things that have drastically changed since you've started this process? It's a good question. Because like I said before, every, every single thing that you do that you take for granted, um, you know, I, I never wore pants to church. I never wore pants unless we went on family vacation. Then I could wear pants because nobody we knew would be around because you don't wear pants at our church. I remember my pastor's son seeing a picture of me on vacation. I wore pants and he's like, what are you wearing? I'm like pants, you wear pants only when we're on vacation. Um, so, but the first time I wore pants to church was when I was nine and a half months pregnant and I could hardly walk because my kid was late. And so right. I felt like I was sinning, um, but I wore pants and you know what? God didn't smite me. Um, I would say the biggest part, it has affected every aspect of my life down to how I dress, how I carry myself, how I decorate my home even, but the biggest elements would be how I see myself, the relationship I have, how my marriage works, as well as my goals and, um, style of parenting. Those are the three biggest shifts that have had the most impact. Yes, we could go into politics. Yes, we could go into all these other areas. But as far as practically the things that have affected me the most in my day-to-day -to -day life would be how I view myself, my marriage, and parenting. Right. And would you say that's pretty common with the people that come to see you as well? Would most of them fit that category? Um, or what, what, what's the typical person coming to you? Are they at a stage where they are struggling if they believe anything whatsoever? Is it minor changes that they can't address? Is it generally mm -hmm. a cultish background? Like what's your average person that walks through the, I guess, virtual door right now? <laughs> yeah, virtual. Um, so far it has been, um, people that want to hold on to their faith. 
they're usually a little bit older. They're more in the married with a kid or two or three or four. A um, little bit older means like, you know, 30 to 45. <laughs> um, and yes, they all have some form of cultish background, whether that would be uh, Scientology or um, Mormonism, IFB, you know, whatever we want to start labeling there. Um, I've also spoken with people who've just been very hurt by their church, mm. um, whether it's whether it's the Catholic church or whatever, where they're just asking questions. Or basically, they're at the, the start of right. the process of, do I go there or not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to assume the reason for that age bracket is because when you're, you know, a 20 something without a wife and kids, you can make changes pretty quickly and not yeah. worry about ramifications. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm assuming most people that come in that have a kid or are what you were feeling. Well, I want to raise them. I feel like I believe enough to raise them in a church environment, but mm-hmm. I don't agree with half of what they're saying, but I also don't want to like tear down what they're saying because I want them to believe like I believe. And so that's got to be a confusing time. I mean, even, even with me, I guess that's been a little yeah. difficult, even though I had kind of moved out of it as a, you know, as a single person, mm-hmm. it's still hard at times where it's like, man, there's some experiences I had as a kid that I would like for yeah. her, but I'm also too aware of possibilities of things to go wrong with some of those yes. choices, you know, putting her in yes. a nursery, putting her in a vacation Bible school, yes. um, you know, once you kind of know some of that stuff, it becomes very hard to act as if everything's okay. Um, So, so I I know I asked you a little bit beforehand. So like as far as your personal belief system, you'd still identify as a Christian, which I think is surprising to people. Cause like I said, when you hear deconstructions, usually, you know, when you see a viral YouTube video where someone famous says, Oh, I started asking questions or a Christian rock artist that stepped away. Um, So what is it that's, I guess, compelled you to stay within the Christian faith, even though you've identified so much within the Christian church that you strongly disagree with? Absolutely. Um, For me personally, I will be honest with you. I really tried to walk away from Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, there would be a day I'd wake up and be like, this is it. I no longer believe there even is a God. I don't. And I'd go throughout the day and I'd be like, why don't I want to believe in God anymore? <laughs> I was just like, no, no, no. I don't believe in God. He doesn't exist. And then I would be, but why don't I want to believe he exists? So I kept having like these internal, these internal conversations that just like literally with myself, it was this constant battle. I guess it's like the two angels on your shoulder or something. And, um, And finally, I came to the point of like, I believe that it's humans who've messed it all up. I believe it's humans that are control freaks, that are narcissists, that are manipulators, that are, they want what they want and they're controlling it. And so I began to understand. So I went, like I said, five or six years without ever darkening the doors of the church, unless my kid was in a production, like a Christmas pageant or something. And then I would go and leave as fast as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I began to realize it's like, hold on. I, I finally opened my Bible again after also taking a long break from never reading the scriptures again. Right. And it was different. I read out what that's not what in the world. And so I started realizing that the original intent of God has been it's been messed up just like people talk about the original intent of the founding fathers and that's a huge debate i think that that might be one of the debates that need to happen now of like humans have taken what god intended and twisted it they're not looking through the lenses and to be quite honest it was only been in the last 18 months that i really solidified that i was okay and that i was choosing to be a christian still Mm. um people don't understand the bible as a historical document either and they so really the new testament should be first and the old testament should be last because today we're in the new testament the old testament is historical for us to study and understand and so i started learning from whole new perspectives and i decided to be a christian because i believe 
the truth of who God is, it has to be experienced. You have to, I believe you need to work it out for yourself. You need to make the choice for yourself. Experience it for yourself. And that is what traditional Christianity doesn't allow because they have all these man-made ideas and formulas and plans. And well, and again, people, especially within the IFB church, the Bible has become an idol. Hmm. Did you read your Bible today? How much did you read your Bible today? All about Bible, Bible. How many Bible facts do you know? How much Bible? Well, how much time did you spend talking to Jesus today? would be a better question. Right. And so they even put, and this may seem, sound like blasphemy for many people, but the idea of who, who God is, is also an idol. Hmm. And so my Christianity, I've already been accused of being a progressive Christian. Um, and so I'm looking at it, though, as, you no, know, the IFB world and many others other church cultures don't allow people to explore their faith outside of the boundaries that have been placed there. And I wanted to walk away and I always heard a little voice in the back of my head that says, I want you to ask questions, ask all the hard questions. I'm going to be here. And whenever you want to come back, you will. And I believe that was actually the true Jesus who's okay with us asking hard questions. He's okay with my faith, not looking like how I was raised. And so that's why I personally chose to stick in with Christianity. Hmm. Um, so I, I definitely want to dive into a bit more like, obviously like how you, um, yeah. how you actually assist people through this process, because like the way that you just described it, it's uh-huh. not something that, you could just snap into like, Oh, one way or the other, or make it quick. It, it does something that I think most people who have religious background, especially are uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. It moves away from black and white in a mm-hmm. lot of areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're helping someone that comes to you, are you a, is it like you're facilitating the conversation and asking them leading questions? Is it working through curriculum? Like how are you helping someone through a journey where it kind of has to be a journey on your own at the end of the day? Yeah. Um, well, religious trauma, deconstruction, um, deprogramming, like all of these things, it's still a relatively new science. Um, there are some people stepping into that area now, but um, it is an area within the mental health profession that really needs to be studied a whole lot more. So there are a few books, there are some resources, but it is a massive wave of people that are experiencing this. And that's another thing that I saw within um, with when someone has a DNA test that makes a surprise discovery, nobody had ever heard about that. Right. So I, I started in my professional um, position, been working with researchers to do the first ever studies into all these surprise DNA discoveries and tests. Mm. And I started looking, well, what studies have been done about children who were raised in cult right. environments? Well, there's hardly anything out there. Hmm. And so it's really hard to say that there's a curriculum or a foundation or, or whatever. And everyone's experiences are so vastly different depending on how immersed they were into the church or faith or religion that they, the cult that they grew up in. Um, I, as prof- professionally, it's not my job to tell you what to believe or who to believe in. That's not my job. So I would approach this as you tell me if you want this to be a, are you looking to still be a Christian at the end of this? Or are you wanting to search and look somewhere else? Like, so you get to lead. This is your session. Um, Through coaching, coaching is so different. I don't know if you've had personal experience with the life coach or not, Um, but it's very different from traditional therapies um or counselors um we don't have to be certified by a a big board or anything um which again many people are questioning that um we don't have to have licensing and uh, things along those lines so it's smart to find someone who has an education that in somehow anybody can say they're a life coach but not everybody's actually qualified to be a life coach 
Um, so, but I take you through steps of awareness. Like, what is it actually going on in your world? How are things going from there? Um, then what's your vision? Where do you want to go? How do you want it to look like? Um, what are some of the obstacles that are getting to get in your way? And how can we together work at a strategy that can help get you there? Um, you have to, through coaching, you need to pick one little thing. Let's say uh, parenting. I'm really struggling with these three decisions right now. Do we spank or don't we spank? Do I demand first time obedience or don't I? Um, you pick those things that you're dealing with and we focus on that through a couple of sessions. Um, it's not a very broad, we try to really zoom in and for, work on one thing at a time. Mm. Um, how many sessions you need is up to you. Um, if you're like, all right, after three or four sessions, I, that one area now, we're good. Um, then you're done. So, but a coaching relationship is more like, um, is having a friend. And yes, I ask you questions. I will ask you a question and that I hope will help you think. Um, I hope the, through the line of questioning, it's able to have some transformation in your life where you feel, Oh, that's why I think that I didn't realize I still believed that. Um, I didn't realize that that was triggering me and that's why I was reacting that way. Um, mm. life coaches are, we do not, um, prescribe medication. We do not diagnose anything. If you have some coaches and, uh, counselors can work together. Um, so if you wanted to see a coach as well as see a licensed professional, that, that is something that people are doing now as well. Mm. So, um, I know you mentioned like what you do, but what's the best way for someone to connect with you if they're saying, oh, that's something I'm interested in doing, or that's something where, you know, maybe it would be helpful. Like what's the best way for them to connect with you and start asking some questions like that? Yeah. It would be on my website, which is RebeccaDrumsta.com. Rebecca is the old Hebrew, R-E-B-E-K-A-H, and then Drumsta, D-R-U-M-S-T-A, RebeccaDrumsta.com. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. If someone's interested in that, be sure to check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes so people can, can look at that. Um, I have Thank one you. more question that's maybe a little bit different. Um, okay. But w one thing that I, um, like I still identify as a Christian myself, and but I do think that a lot of, a lot of what you've described and a lot of feelings of trauma or confu extreme confusion that people feel yeah. could be avoided if there wasn't so much coercion toward belief and like, mm -hmm. like guilting or manipulating. So mm -hmm. what do you think are some ways, like if you were, if there was a pastor listening to this, which is very probable and mm -hmm. you know, and that's how I there. discovered you by the way. Oh, okay. Well, there you a, go. a pastor friend of mine who actually, he took over an IFB church um, and has radically changed them in the last six years. He's like, you need to listen to this podcast, Rebecca. <laughs> so that's how I found you via oh. a former I, I, via, or IFB pastor. Interesting. Um, and I'm super, I'm trying to deduce who it is, but, uh, but um, <laughs> no. So if, if a pastor's listening to this, what are some things that you feel like pastors could do when leading their church to make it where they can prevent or prevent, present their faith and present the doctrines that they believe without, you know, overstepping bounds that can cause damage to congregants later on down the road. What are some things that yeah. you think churches should think about when dealing with, with leading groups of people like this? Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because that's where I feel like my perspective is a little different than people on both sides of the issue. Um, I'm actually in the process of writing two different books and, um, when I'm finished writing the second book, this part will be a lot more polished and eloquent, but um, yes. So I feel like on both sides of this deconstruction or um, movement to progressive Christianity or deconverting completely, um, I feel like on both sides of this issue, um, excuse the childlike description, but people are flinging poo. They are literally, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And I've been looking and, and this was again, part of the reason why I felt like I needed to walk into this world right now was that the people I was finding online who were trying to help and who genuinely want to help people process through their mental and physical traumas um, coming out of whether it's IFB or any of the other backgrounds, um, I was seeing 
two different perspectives on this. One was they were basically shaming people for exercising their free will to stay in Christianity. Hmm. Oh, how stupid you must be. Or how horrible. How could you even stay in a faith that would ask this of you or tell you to do that? They were shaming people who had, like myself, I literally went through it all. I deconstructed. I pieced it apart. I dissected it. I looked at faiths and why people believe that and what are the alternative beliefs or what was I feeling like I should believe. Um, Then they were also telling people that if you are going to go through a deconstruction, that means you are going to deconvert. It may be five years from now, but you will deconvert. Hmm. And I was like, wait a minute. Basic, in all my experiences and trainings, uh, Mental health professionals are not supposed to be telling people what to do. You can say, in our experience, we've seen this, or nine out of 10 people we've worked with have had this conclusion, but they haven't been doing that. They're telling you, this is what you will decide. This is how you will do it. So that set me off, like very upset. No, 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 no. That's not ethically correct. On the flip side of that, from the churches or the pastor's perspectives, um, and there's even been a recent book out with this whole philosophy, um, you throw more apologetics at them. You throw more doctrine at them. Um, And that's how we're going to fix it. They name call, and you're not really a Christian, or you must have had more faith, or they start name calling all these people, labeling even the term um, de-churched has become a a thing in the church, which to me is an offensive term. Um, But I'm looking like, wait a minute. So I hear the term Bible as a weapon a lot. So people that are deconstructing their faith, who've been hurt, who've physically been assaulted, who have been all of these things by a church leader or their own family, but the church did nothing about it. They have all been wounded. And so when someone is deconstructing their faith and you say, well, you just need more apologetics. You just need to learn more about God. You just need all this more doctrine. So here, this will fix it. Really what you're doing is asking them to go to Starbucks and sit down with the person who assaulted them and be okay with it. Yeah. And so I feel like on the one side, those who are in the, deconverted camp or you know whatever they need to be very cautious with the verbiage and their wording because again the whole purpose of this is free will right like most of us you don't have the freedom to choose you don't have the freedom to make your own decisions you don't have the freedom so now somebody over here is telling me i have to leave my faith or i have to do it this way and so but they need to be very cautious with how Mm. they're presenting things on the church side It's time to shut up and listen because how prideful is it to say, we have all the answers. You're the one who messed up. No. So as in any relationship in a marriage, as a parent, you need to listen and hear the trauma, hear the pain. And then you need to be humble enough to be willing to see how, even if you yourself didn't do the abusing, how the people around you or your denomination or the books that you were encouraging people to read and handing out at church, because there have been books where literally children have been killed because people followed this Christian parenting method. Um, to sit down and humbly listen to what people are telling you. Right. Validate the trauma, validate their pain. And when people will listen, then I might be able to trust you again. Hmm. Now, there is the whole conversation to be had on can the church even be saved as the church in general? And COVID has kind of changed the way people are doing church. And um, but again, that's the conversation for another day. Um, but if you are a pastor and you realize that this is happening in your, in your church, in your community, people around you, Don't be the one who's out there throwing more apologetics and let's learn more about God because that'll solve the problem. That's not what that person needs right now. They need you to sit and listen and admit when a mistake has been made. Admit you were assaulted in your own church. That should never have happened. Right. Um, 
I'm working with a network of people who are, we're trying to figure this out right now. We're trying to be able to provide solutions for churches, um, how to put things in place, how to recognize it, and how to show humility and realize we've made mistakes. Our doctrine's been wrong or our teachings have been wrong. Um, you don't just ignore the person who's hurt. You right. need to listen. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. There's a time and a place for all of that, but I agree. You have to listen before you can start just unloading your yeah. theology on somebody. I think there has to be some mm-hmm. concession that something's been handled incorrectly and acknowledging yeah. where people are at. But, um, but I appreciate you coming on and um, I hope people will connect with you. Check out your writing on this stuff. I think it's super interesting because you don't often see this career path with a you know faith background, really. It's usually, like I said, the, the perception, like when you hear the word, it's such a loaded term, but I think it is, it is important, um, whatever you're going to call it, to process what you actually believe. But um, yeah. yeah, thank you so much. And guys, if you're listening, be sure to click the link in the show notes and visit over to the website. Uh, you can set up coaching calls and things there. I think you do a free 30-minute discovery call. Um, so there's there's plenty of ways to connect. But uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing with, with me and the audience today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.